Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Crack Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. On today's show, we continue our countdown of our top 10 Division I men's college tennis teams heading into what promises to be an exciting 2023 season. Of course, to quickly recap what our preview schedule will look like for all of you college tennis fans. Every Tuesday and Thursday, John Parsons and I will break down one of our Division I top 10 women's teams every Wednesday and Friday. Chris Hallior. Morris and I will break down a Division I men's college tennis team. And look, it is Wednesday. So what are we doing here on today's show? We are talking about our number eight preseason team last season's NCAA finalist, the Kentucky Wildcats. And of course, if we're previewing a top 10 Division I men's team, you know who's joining me on this podcast to do so. You know him best as the forefather of the College Tennis Ranks formula predictions. Never far from the listed UTR, one of the many dames to root for the Liberty Flames. And while he and I are in the honeymoon phase, I will affectionately refer to him as the Professor Chris Halioris. Hey, great shot. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Gruskin. And, I, you know, you, you always seem to add to the intro. I thought during our, you know, our several days off over the weekend of something that really needs to go in there. It needs to be, you know, our our former retired buddy, Matty Stokoyak's favorite member of the Holy Trinity. <laughs> I'll add that to the extended <laughs> intro. I'm also, I think, I'm looking forward after our discussions over the weekend to saying vacation buddy. Chris no, Hallioris no, will eventually, no. yeah, get added as well. That's going to be fun. But no, we've got a really fun show planned for today. I will say in the spirit of the Holy Trinity, not joining us on today's show is our dear friend Johnny Walker. Not that we didn't have a good time with him on Friday, but I'm back in Indianapolis, so... Things have steadied for me here on this show. And again, we've got a very fun podcast planned for all of you listeners today as we talk about maybe one of the most fascinating teams in our preseason top 10, the Kentucky Wildcats. Of course, you look back at what Kentucky was able to accomplish last season, their run in Champaign. Maybe the most remarkable thing I've seen in person at a national indoor or NCAA tournament style event, obviously for Kentucky, who finishes the 2022 season 26 and 8 overall, regardless of how they ended up in SEC play. They reach a first NCAA final for head coach Cedric Kaufman. And, you know, the fact that they beat TCU 4 3 in that opening match, the fact that they 
you know, looked like they were on their way to a 6-1 victory over Ohio State in the semifinals. Even, you know, going back to their round of 32 match when they were tested by Northwestern, obviously tested by Wake Forest in the round of 16, this was a team that took lumps, that took some bruises, got calloused up throughout the course of the year, but ultimately, of course, ends up in an NCAA final. Now, as fascinating as that run was, one could argue no team has been more fascinating to monitor this offseason than the Kentucky Wildcats. And just a quick narrative arc for all of you college tennis fans who may have forgotten. Let's go back to the June-July range. This is pre-Gabe Diallo shocking the world with all of his pro tennis success. And shocking the world might be a bit of hyperbole. But folks, I'm trying to tell the story. So I hope you'll embrace me with that um, or embrace that fact. This is a team that was bringing in, announced, Alafiaini from Cornell, who had been a top 50 player in the country, had been a blue chip recruit, and you know was going to come in to replace the absence of Melon Hurrian, who was obviously outstanding in his final season last year. Then, on top of that, you know not only were they in theory bringing back Draxel, Diallo, Lapidot, and you know uh, Alafia. I'm I'm blanking on a name here as well, who would be that fifth name. Um, right away, or that core four, excuse me, but then they add that fifth name, there it is, in Wake Forest, Taha Body, who has proven he can win 60% of his matches in a three through five singles position throughout the course of his career. Now, again, that's taking us to June and July. Of course, we don't even have to talk about the Liam Draxel side of things as it does look like he will certainly be back, but then you have the run. Of Gabriel Diallo. And for all of you college tennis fans who maybe haven't been keeping up too closely with his pro results, but saw his decision to turn pro, why did he make that choice? Well, it's because right now he's sitting at 229 in the world. And he did that on the back of a 23 and 10 record here in pro tennis this year. And he's going to get into Australian Open qualifying. And he doesn't have a single point to defend on his resume until the start of June. Five free months of tennis for the 21-year-old to try and build up his pro ranking. There is a legitimate pathway to the pros for Gabriel Diallo. And so ultimately, he announces, thankfully, at the start of November, before we started our preseason podcast, that he does ultimately want or did ultimately make that decision to turn professional will be foregoing the rest of his college eligibility. So, of course, there's a twist of the knife into Kentucky fans everywhere. But what's the latest announcement we get from the University of Kentucky? It's the fact that they will be bringing in someone with the now opened up scholarship money, the big addition of Jaden Weeks. I hope I pronounced your last name right. We'll work on it moving forward. But of course, this is a guy who I believe is an over-13 UTR sort of guy, the guy who was a top-50 junior in the world, the Canada-Kentucky pipeline remaining extraordinarily strong. Look, it's a strong four-minute monologue. I apologize, Chris. The point is, is Kentucky the most fascinating team of the past six months? I'm not saying who won or lost the offseason, but I kind of think Kentucky won the offseason, Chris, because, boy, were we talking about them a lot. Yeah, from the from the no, you know, from the no, uh, no publicity is bad publicity department. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think, you know, probably 
them and, and then along with the you know much earlier departure decision coming from you know from Ben Shelton and just all of the turnover and the speculation about Abdul whether he'd be coming back those two teams and both out of the SEC got all kinds of press in the offseason but you're right I mean Diallo look Diallo was he was in the 900s in June to think that the guy just went from 900s in June and here, you know, here we are in December and he's in the 200s. That's ridiculous. And like you said, nothing to lose until, uh, you know, un- until the middle of the year, by all means, bet the best decision. But yeah, that lots of, lots of news uh, about Kentucky. And, uh, and again, a lot of it, uh, like you said, speculation, bringing in Aini, bringing, bringing in body, uh, you know, a couple, even prior to the week's announcement now, uh, you know, bringing, bringing in another, bringing Cosnet uh, as a, as a freshman. Now there was a lot of speculation about what that lineup would look like now with weeks in there. It just gives them more, more depth. Uh, it's going to, and they'll be, it'll be fascinating to see, see how the, you know, how that lineup plays out. <clears throat> yeah, no, absolutely. And look again, for Kentucky, who has had plenty of great players in, you know, the uh, – I'm blanking on names here, but Eric, Eric Quigley, Quigley's of the world. No, no, no. <laughs> I was, I, it's that he was the obvious one. I was trying to go chronologically in my head. Anthony Rossi was the name that I was trying to summon that I blanked on. But the uh, – um, Will B. I'm not even going to try and say Will his last Bushimuka, name. Will Yeah, thank Hennington. you, Bushamuka yeah. is another one who was exceptional or – you know, again, over the years, Rio uh, Matsumura. Yeah, uh, exactly. The point is, Coach Kaufman had had this Kentucky team competing in Sweet Sixteens. They had reached a quarterfinal before, but you know, in how they made the national indoors, yes, they ultimately go, I believe, one and two at the event. But if you watch that Baylor match in the quarterfinals, a match they ultimately lose four three. Boy, was it exciting! And then I know they don't they lose to South Carolina, but they didn't have Draxel for that match and just again to reach the NCAA final with the group that they had Diallo taking the step forward that he did Draxel continuing to play at a top 15 level and obviously you have Hurrian as well they maximize the most out of their roster and I think that's why as we look at the opening question of course did they exceed expectations underperform or get things just right in 2022 here's the interesting thing Chris I think one could argue the fact that they didn't make the SEC tournament final, the fact that they didn't finish top two in the SEC. One could argue they underperformed during the SEC conference season. You know, you look at the big matches that they played, lose 4-3 at South Carolina. They did get Tennessee 4-3, so I suppose that was the big win for them, the 4-3 loss at Florida. Actually, that's you know what? I've contradicted myself. It's really just the SEC tournament loss at Florida 4-0, the way they went out there. Was that in the final as well? Am I just blanking on their season? Did they ultimately reach the final? I actually think they did. And I think that Sunday match was the final, and it was the Auburn team that they beat in the semifinals. Leave it all in, Super Producer Daniel Westhoff, as dumb as I'm going to sound there. And that just makes it clear. They exceeded expectations, right? I guess the number that I look to is the 26-8 and eight overall. Eight feels like more losses than they actually suffered throughout the course of the year. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna let you finish the monologue and say, yeah, that's a that's a typical Gruskin take. No, it's just horrible. They, did, they didn't. Uh, they didn't underperform or even meet expectations. They they exceeded expectations. But yeah, uh, I mean, it was it was a very good year. Um, 
by, by all standards. I, I mean, even when, when you look at all of those laws, I mean, yeah, you say eight losses, you go, wow, for a team that we're, we're talking about as a, you know, a national finalist, number two team, uh, potentially, that sounds like a lot of losses. But then you go back and you go, oh, at Ohio State, Baylor, South Carolina, Virginia, South Carolina again, Florida, Virginia. I mean, there's not a single bad loss in there, right? On our mini break podcast, we play a game of good loss, bad loss. You're absolutely right. 26 and 8, but just to go through it real quick, they lose 4 0 in Columbus in February. Let's be clear going into the national indoors, Ohio State beat everyone in Columbus 4 0. Virginia, Kentucky, you name it, they did it. They lose 4-3 to Baylor. I've already talked about how exceptional that match was. 4-1 to South Carolina. No Draxel that day. 4-3 loss to Florida. 4-2 loss to Virginia. 4-3 loss at South Carolina. 4-0 loss SEC championship to Florida. 4-0 loss in the NCAA final to Virginia. There's not a bad loss. Like you're F- You're right. Again, leave it in. But this was a team that unequivocally exceeded expectations, or maybe to Cedric Kaufman, he knew he had this talent. They were that good last year, Chris. Oh, the, yeah, no doubt. Like I said, that's it. You look at the record, it sounds like a fair number of losses, but every single one of them, a good loss. Sure, maybe, you know, if you want to nitpick, you'd go, well, probably should have beat South Carolina once. But like you said, one of them's indoors Draxelis, uh, who had to take off, you know, for whatever reasons there. Uh, and then the other, a 4-3 loss on the road, I have, you know, really hard to uh, to nitpick that. Everything else, hands down, no question, very acceptable loss. Yeah, I guess when you're looking at this team moving forward, what's so fascinating is looking at the record for them last season. Maybe, you know what it is? It's how many times in the Kentucky season was it like, well, they're down 1-0 in doubles and they got to find four singles victories. And that was what was so impressive as well about last season is how many times this team just found ways to earn victories. I mean, this is a group that went 110-50 and in individual dual match singles results last year. They exceeded the two-thirds rule, Chris. They're winning 68, you know, 69%, excuse me, of their dual match singles results. What does that mean? Well, if you're winning two-thirds of your matches in singles, you are winning four of the six singles flights and just up and down the board. Well, so fascinating. Again, 17 and 10 at one, but Draxel goes 16 and 7 overall there. They're 24 and 7 at two, 26 and 2 at three. One could argue there were few spots as valuable in any lineup last season as that Kentucky number three position. 18 and 8 at four, 18 and 7 at five, but Lapidot 17 and 3 there. Now, the issue is number six, and that's something we will certainly talk about here on today's show, but. Yeah, again, this was a team that found a lot of different ways to scrap their way to four points. And, you know, ultimately, again, their run at the NCAA championship, extraordinarily impressive. And, you know, in my monologue, I kind of alluded to what talent this team brings back. Now, Gab Diallo, sadly, for Kentucky fans, and Chris and I already covered this when he, in the immediate uh, aftermath of his decision, justifiably making that decision to turn pro. But even beyond that, before we get to the new additions, you have to feel pretty good about some of the guys you bring back, right? In Liam Draxel, who certainly over the course of his past three years has been in the All-American conversation, in the top 15 conversation, has been a steady presence 
at that number one spot. You bring back a guy in Josh Lapidot, who was one of the most improved players of last season, 21 in four in uh, dual match play. We can get to the bench a little bit later, but let's just start with those two returners, right? You feel very good about those two heading into 2023. Yeah, I mean, they're they're locks to be top, you know, top five guys in your lineup. Uh, obviously, Draxel is going to be uh, a top three guy in the lineup. And uh, in, and now without, you know, now that you say, oh, no, Diallo, he's, you know, he's, he's a top two guy in the lineup, you know, in all likelihood, number one. I don't know without Diallo how you don't put him uh, back at one again, you know, you could make an argument for, for a Lafayette, but, uh, but yeah, you're, you, you don't feel bad ab- about that at all. You love to have those guys coming back. Yeah. Again, Draxel steady presence at number one. Does he have the biggest weapons? Maybe not the service sneaky big. He's going to mix in the variety and then he's just going to track down that extra ball. He's going to be the thorn in your side. That energy he brings very much the beating heart at times of this Kentucky team. And, let me ask you this, 21-4 for four Lapidot last season. How replicable does that feel? I mean, when I watched the lefty play, I said it after watching him in Knoxville. Go check the tape last fall. I said, Chris, I'm telling you, this lefty Lapidot, he's just got skills. He's comfortable moving forward. Everything is very smooth. I guess part of it feels like where will he play in the lineup might ultimately determine this fact. But you said two locks. What do, when you say that in reference to Lapidot, what do you mean? Uh, just meaning that he he's obviously he's in the lineup and he's yeah. playing somewhere in the top five, uh, and and you're going to feel good about it now. Yeah, I don't necessarily mean locks as, as points. To your point, I do. I believe if you want to go down the road of playing him at five again, which clearly would mean you know that you're you're putting him behind. A couple other guys in, say, Tahabadi clearly has to be above him. You'd be playing, you know, Draxel, Aini, Body. I, I don't see how you're going to – I don't see how that happens because then you'd have to play Cosnet, uh, in my estimation, at, at four. I think he's at least playing four, if not three. Even at four, I think that's very replicable. I think at three, he starts getting to where – not that he's not going to win more than he loses – but now, you know, you get up to three and you're starting to play the guys that are, you know, he was just playing. He was at a position where he was a better level than the guys he was playing. And that's why he went 21 and four. Right. I mean, he was frankly, just because of the rest of the team that he had in front of him, he was a, the better player at five than almost everybody he faced, even when he played really good players. I I told, I went to that A&M match and I love Perego and I watched them play and I'm like, I have no idea how the hell Perego just got beaten like like got the snot beat out of him and Lapidot made it look like it was just effortless. Uh, he's, he, he's a phenomenal talent and, and he, it was just coming through. So I think this year, I I honestly do think we probably see him playing three in that lineup, but yeah, but we'll see. Yeah. I mean, with that said, the, all all the other returners that they bring back, the guy you probably look towards most is JJ Mercer and Mercer last year, seven and 11, uh, overall in dual match play four and seven at the number six spot. Now, obviously 10 and seven in doubles with Lapidot 20 and eight overall on the year. Um, you know what JJ Mercer brings to the doubles court. He is going to be a piece in every perspective, Kentucky doubles lineup a year later. 
if he's at the number six spot, how do you feel about him as a returner on this lineup? Not good if, if he's the six. Yeah, I mean, indoors is maybe one thing. Outdoors, for sure, no. I, I mean, that's that's not a spot you're hoping. I, I mean, and, and you know, not trying to slide J.J. Mercer. He is absolutely going to be a critical piece of that doubles lineup. But for the team's success, uh, you're hoping that in, between weeks coming in, and and Cosnet that that really is your five six. Mm-hmm. No, it's certainly a. I mean, his attacking game style. He got to play in some really big matches throughout the course of last season. And you know, again, let's be clear: why is Kentucky able to make the run that they go on in the NCAA tournament? Well, you know, you go and look at the TCU match. Uh, obviously, uh, you know. It was their ability to sweep the top four. You go and look at the Ohio State match. J.J. Mercer wins that second set against Luchanik, and all of a sudden you just feel like everything starts to go Kentucky's way. And, I mean, look, you know what you're getting in Mercer. He's going to try and attack. He's going to try and get to the net. Does he have the biggest weapons? No, but he's going to put all of that, you know, all of his size, all of his effort behind every ball that he hits. It's never a bad thing to have a fourth-year player at the number six spot. That's just what I would say. And I think 7-11 is low-hanging fruit. If you're telling me J.J. Wolf plays 500 tennis next year, 500 tennis at the number six spot, Chris, means that Kentucky improved by like four or five matches at that position. They'd go from 7-16 and 16 to, I don't know, 12-12 and 12 overall at that sixth spot, or if even J.J. can just play a ton of three-set matches and allow some players above him in the lineup to maybe make a leap. I see what you're saying, especially in reference to some of the other sixes we'll talk about as we'll progress in our preseason top 10 rankings, but I don't know. I'm still going to take a flyer, the slightest of flyers on the J.J. Mercer season. That said, to your point, you do feel like the best version of this Kentucky lineups is supplemented by the new additions they brought in and that those new additions become the best version of themselves. And let's start with the two big names, Alafiaini, the fifth year coming over from Kentucky, and Taha Badi, who comes over as a senior, but I believe still has one additional year of eligibility from Wake Forest. You look for Alafia. He was a guy who had a big fall, obviously was able, or I believe, but you know, was able to reach the big events, all Americans, national, uh, national fall championships. He also was able to reach the semifinals of the Fairfield challenger, uh, throughout the course of the summer, a guy who was ranked 27 in the initial ITA fall rankings. I mean, look, we know what Alafia – I don't know if he played fall nets actually, but he definitely played the ITA All-Americans. That's a guy you bring in who was all-team, you know, all-first-team Ivy League during his time in Cornell, a guy who went 19-6 and last year at the number one spot in singles competition, earned an NCAA at-large bid, and ostensibly, you know – you know what? It's funny. I was about to say he's going to play three singles for them behind Draxel and Diallo. Now, that's no longer the case, but you feel like with Alafia, you have a second number one singles player, right? Like, yes, we lose Diallo and having the luxury of the top three that they did last year. Maybe that's no longer in the cards, but you still feel really good about the Kentucky top two, right? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I I, I would bet unless you're a really, really, really close follower uh, of college tennis that most of the folks don't know 
This is your top ranked ATP guy in college right now, I believe. It's a Lafia? Uh, I'm not going to swear to that. He's like 435. Wow. That's a challenger semifinal for you. I, I don't, I, you know, I, 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 off the top of my head, and I'd have to go look, I don't think there's anybody else in front of him right now. Yeah. Uh, that's- so, you know, you got a guy that's top 500 in the world right now, and you're talking about, he's okay somewhere in the top two, right? Well, I would sure hope so. Yeah. I mean, that, no. that there's that there's no question he he can play there. There's zero question whatsoever. So yeah, they're fine. They're top two. Drax Laini. I don't even. I don't care what order you play no. them in. That's your top two, and they're fine. They're not fine. They're exceptional, right? Exactly. And, and I think when you look at this, so here's a fun. Let's play a little numbers game, Professor. You look for this Kentucky team, forty-one and seventeen overall at the top two positions last year. They won seventy-one percent of their matches. Do they exceed that number this year? Because sometimes college tennis is just math. And so, again, they won 70.7% if we want to be exact. Again, 41 and 17 overall at the top two spots. I what, feel uh, like they I could guess, be a yeah, little bit my, better. I, yeah, my my thought is what are uh, – If I tell you they go 48 and 13 next year and, you know, they win 79% of the top two – because Draxel at 16-7 last year, he left some meat on the bone, Chris. Well, yeah, maybe it's just the Steve think, Foreman I'm, match. I'm honestly having a hard time thinking that they lose seven, you know, 17 matches. That's eight and a half apiece, right? Yeah. I have a hard time seeing them losing eight and nine matches at those two positions. I I you know, I would expect very sim very similar and and honestly, I would think they're looking for better. Yeah, I agree with you. I do think mathematically that's low-hanging fruit. And again, in these preseason pods, folks, that's what we do. We nerd out. We look at the math. I also love the fact that it's still a contrast of styles, that it's Draxel, the Energizer Bunny that he is, and then the 6-3 Alafia bombing serves, hitting the big ball, moving forward. I just like what they bring to the top of the lineup I mean, beyond that, again, you also bring in Taha Body, and for those that aren't aware of what Taha Body was able to accomplish during his time at Wake Forest, 35 and 21 in singles, went 15 and 7 last year, you know, played anywhere between two through five. It's a Tony Bresky lineup, so Taha Body played just about every spot in that Wake Forest lineup throughout the course of his career. But, you know, again, this is a guy who has been a steady presence in the bottom of the lineup for a top 12 team perennially through his first three seasons. He's gotten to play in some big matches, national indoors NCAA tournament while at Wake Forest. And again, you're not asking Body to come in and come play two singles. You're asking him, maybe he plays three, but you know, behind Alafia, maybe he and Lapidot jostle for those three and four spots. And if you're getting a fourth year in Taha Body playing in the middle of your lineup, he doesn't have the biggest weapons, but he's pretty steady off both wings. You feel pretty good about that, right, Chris? 24 and 11 in doubles, by the way, as well. So you get another piece there in what was, again, a team that struggled last year, 42 and 35, 55% win percentage in doubles dual match play. Yeah, I mean, I think you nailed it. I think it's going to be a, uh, in all likelihood, a body Lapidot conversation for 3-4. And, and we'll see, I, you know, to your point, without 
huge weapons. I I kind of like playing the lefty at three, playing body at four, but but uh, they'll have all kinds of flexibility uh, and and you know could shock us, and it may not even be that. But I I think that's what we see. Uh, and yeah, I mean he's he he will he would be a great. I think he would be okay for them at three. I think he will be great at four. Yeah, and look again. What you like about bringing guys in Alafia and Body is they've proven it. They've done it. Yes, there have been a plethora of transfers, certainly, over the course of the past few seasons. And some have worked out extraordinarily well, some lesser so. That said, you feel like these would go more towards the Stokowiak, Broom, Furman camp of players, right? Where especially Alafia, like that is Charlie Broom-esque, where you're getting a number one guy who is in the mix coming over now into a power five conference and you feel very confident about his ability for success. Of course, though, you don't only bring in two players proven commodities in the, you know, uh, college tennis ranks, but you bring in a bunch of highly touted juniors as well. And I talk about that Canada to Kentucky pipeline, two of them obviously coming via Canada. Let's talk about the most recent announcement. And here's some news. Obviously, with Diallo leaving, a spot opens up on the roster. Spots immediately filled by head coach Cedric Kaufman as Jaden Weekes is announced as a member of this team. Now, you look for him, reached a career-high junior ranking of number 21, top 1,500 ATP singles ranking, just as my way of saying he has earned ATP points in the past. But a top 25 ITF junior, a guy with a 13-plus UTR, Chris, who's played in all the junior slams. And again, you're not asking him to come in and play one or two singles. You're hoping he clicks and is able to fill in somewhere three through six in the lineup. You bring in a guy in Christophe Clement from Quebec, number two ranked Canada U18 junior. You can tell us more about his UTR in a little bit. You also bring in uh, Charlie Cosnet will work on that pronunciation moving forward, but this is a guy who was top 100 ITF junior, number 81. And again, you're not asking him to play one or two. You're hoping two of these three guys ultimately pan out to pair with the proven commodities of Lapidot body in that three through six spot in the lineup. Talk to me about the three freshmen from a UTR perspective, Chris. Talk to me about what you think about them heading into the year and this recruiting class. Yeah, not a lot of results out there on Clement, yeah. so I don't know, you know, and, and what's out there isn't great, I, so I don't see him, uh, I don't see him, you know, maybe there's some injury past there and he's coming back, I don't see I don't see him cracking the lineup, I would say long before he gets there, you've got other guys on the team like Jonathan Sorbo, like, you know, like LeBlanc, uh, obviously J.J. Mercer that would be in front of him fighting for that spot, but the, but the other two guys that you mentioned, Cosnet uh and then and then weakest the 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 new though they're both 13 plus they're both low you know like a third right around 13 10 uh if you will uh utr wise some really good really good results you you talked about you know uh, many of the matches that that weakest has he's he's had some you know he's even gotten to play some some challengers the canadians obviously do uh do a really good job at uh at, at the national program, taking care of their own, getting them into challengers, et cetera. So he had lots of opportunity. 
to play some some challengers came up you know with some some really good wins some other good ones he's you know he played guys like Skander Mansuri that we that you know all the college tennis fans know hell he went three and four in the ATP event in Montreal against Daniel Altmaier uh, <laughs> which is I mean that that's a top hundred guy in the world though that's he did lose high. to teammate Jonathan Sorbo at a twenty yeah and then day. Sorbo and then Sorbo beats him which is just a horrible yeah. loss. <laughs> yeah so and probably will i'm sure there'll be some good joking around about that uh you know in the competition for that six spot or or or, or five spot whatever it may be on the team but uh uh yeah he's i mean you look through his his, his results this year if you will and you're gonna see kind of what you expect out of a young junior some really good wins some really competitive matches and then just some losses that you're like, huh, wonder what happened there. Uh, but, you know, that's going to happen with with 18, 19 year old kids. Right. Um, so. So, yeah, he, but he, I don't think there's any question that that he can play and that he he will in all likelihood uh, be in that lineup. Uh, and then, uh, as you mentioned, uh, uh, the other guy, Cosnet, who I, I believe will also be. Uh, the other piece to the start to the to the best version of a Kentucky lineup. Those are the two guys uh, that probably need to need to fill in. Uh, you know, I know a lot of he's got he just recently right just recently in uh, at the Columbus 25K beat Kyle Kang took a loss to Anthrop. No shame there, but uh, uh, that that was a, a great win uh, for him over Kyle Kang. He's had some really good good results. I think there's there's no doubt even from his perspective either that that he can play. So they're I think they're fairly known, both good good junior records. I think we're gonna see both of those guys in, in the lineup. And that's to for for Kentucky to have their best chance, that's what we need to see from a singles perspective. Yeah, well, uh, you know, it's interesting because now that we've listed out all of the guys, and again, shout out to LeBlanc, Sorbo, others on the roster, I think when you look at the team strengths, we've clearly established the top two. Draxel, Alafia, the fact that we view them as perhaps winning more than 71% of their matches this year feels like 75% is a very reasonable number to expect out of those two. That's a clear strength. But I also think one of their strengths as well as a weakness slash concern, is their depth. Like, why is it a strength? Because you feel like with body, Lapidot, again, they're both going to be pretty good in the middle of the lineup. They've proven that already throughout the course of their college career. And then it's the plethora of options to have three different freshmen. You really need one of them to click, but if two of them click, now you have yourself a clear six. Similarly, Mercer, LeBlanc, Sorbo, if one of them takes a leap forward, you have two groups of three players pretty clearly where you just need one of these double three options, right, to click. I think that's a possibility for this team this year, Chris, and I like the fact that they have those options that, yeah, they're probably going to experiment a little bit early on who's playing where, how would the freshman acclimate indoors versus outdoors? Do we go Mercer, Clement, whatever these different decisions may be? But I think this team has choices, right? They have depth in a way that maybe some of our earlier teams, USC, Georgia, maybe don't. Yeah, I, I mean, for I, I'm in a, theory, in theory. I, I'm, well, the only the, the only part I'm a little hesitant on is the sort of how much 
playing around, if you will, that that we will get to see. Or Kaz, by the way, not Clement, but go on. Yeah, Kaz, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think we we will see that, okay, pre-ITA kickoff. Yeah, they've got a couple matches with Dayton and a match with Northern Kentucky. Not sure you actually learn anything from those. That is the problem. Uh, so, yes, maybe you give some of those guys, uh, a sh- you know, some some playing time. Now, the match against Illinois, different story. But I think that's a match where being your last match you, you're, and really your only competitive match pre-ITA kickoff weekend, you probably want to roll with the guys you think you're playing ITA kickoff weekend. Uh, although, I, let's be honest, I do not expect a huge challenge for them kickoff weekend but it, at the same time you never want to be that get be the guy that gets caught you know with his guard down not playing your best lineup and then all of a sudden you know all the stars align and you get upset uh yeah. so i think i think they play the best the best version of the team and then like pre-sec and pre-indoors there's nothing i mean virginia virginia tech maybe Louisville, sneaky good, and Duke. There's not a lot of opportunity to get these guys, you know, meaningful playing time. Virginia Tech, I could see uh, doing that, but I don't know that those guys get. I mean, I, I think they're going to have to roll. You know, you know, Cedric and Coach Gordon are going to figure out who they think those six guys are, and you know, maybe if it's really, really close with a seventh guy, you do a little six-seven rotation. But outside of that. I don't see a lot of wholesale. Hey, let's let them all play. Other than uh, other than the Dayton and, and Northern Kentucky matches. Well, you have alluded to it. The depth is both a strength and again a weakness and a concern because Costnet six and one in fall singles matches according to his team page, but like seven matches. That's the sample size we have to go on him. Clement one and two in both singles and doubles. We have yet to see Weeks play a match of college tennis. You know, again, J.J. Mercer, 7-11 and 11 last year overall uh, at that number six single spot. You look for Mercer here in the fall, 2-3 uh, and three fall singles record, now 5-3 and three in doubles. But again, they need someone to pop. They've got a lot of different things to choose from. But, you know, that is why they're number eight and not number two as we had them when we thought Diallo might be coming back as well. That said, I do want to get to that schedule, but let's quickly crank through that projected lineup. Draxel or Alafia, who starts the year at one? Draxel. Indoors? I mean, I look, do I think it should be that way? No, I would love to play. And I'm, and, and honestly, I, I, you know, I think Draxel's the kind of guy to be fine with it. I, I think he'd say, yeah, whatever, whatever we need to do to win. You know, he is the ultimate team guy if you've ever watched uh, watch them play. So I think he'd be okay with it. I would love to be playing him at two. And certainly uh Alafia's got the big, you know, he's got the bigger weapons, more suited for one in general, and certainly indoors uh the with the bombs more suited there. So I, it may become a person, you know, it may come down to, hey, is it going to, you know, does it make a difference personality wise or whatnot? I think you just sort of give him the reigning number one guy's respect, if you will. But I'm OK in either direction. And personally, I'd rather them see I'd rather see them playing Lafayette at one and, and Draxel at two. Draxel's not losing it too. come on. 
Hot take is that Alafia starts the year at one, but then as you get to the outdoor season, court one just is Draxel's. So I think they make that switch then. Lop it out, body. Who's three? Who's four? Uh, I, I want to say, again, if I'm making the lineup in the order I think they deserve to be playing, I play I play Lapidot three, body four. Uh, you know, mathematically, huh. you might be better off flipping it around in you know in what I would call in your own head a mini stack, but you don't even you know who knows. Uh, yeah. it, it may not be that way, but but I like I like Lapidot three, Taha four. I agree with everything you said. All right, five six. What's it look like? I mean, I, do, I have not seen either of these two guys play. I still think it's Cosnet and and the new guy in some order. Mm-hmm. Had no clue what order it's in, but I think it's those two guys. And, and I don't know. Uh, I guess the other question is when Jaden comes in, you know, how quick is he getting the how quick is he getting to Lexington, and is he ready to roll right away in January? For sure, I would assume he's ready to roll by uh, by kickoff weekend, and and they want to get him. They want to get him into as many matches. That's a guy I don't think you want to split any playing time with just because he's never played a college match and he hasn't even been on campus the first six months. So he he needs to figure out what college tennis is all about quickly. So you get him in the matches. But uh, but yeah, I'll I'll take a flyer and say that it's that it's weeks at five and Cosnet at six. Yeah, I mean, look. I think the best version of this team means both the top 100 ITF juniors, Cosnet and Weeks click, and they're both in the lineup. Uh, you know, glass half full here, preview pod. They're both in the lineup at the end of the season. That said, I feel pretty good rolling J.J. Mercer kickoff weekend national indoors at that number six spot. I think that's how we see them start the year. Schedule conference outlook. You mentioned the non-conference matches, and for what it's worth, they're at Virginia after hosting them last year. They're playing Duke at home. They're at Louisville, at Virginia Tech. Here's the big thing. Looking at last year's Kentucky team, they got a lot of SEC matches at home. Florida, they played at home. Auburn, they played at home. A&M, they played at home. Uh, Tennessee, they played at home. Georgia, they played at home. Chris Halioris, that is not the case this season. They are at Texas A&M. They are at an Auburn team that we both agree is going to be sneaky frisky in what is the make or break year for this group. Not make or break for the program, but like this is their chance to really roll the dice over at Auburn. They are at Georgia, at Tennessee in what is a brutal late March, early April weekend. And then the piece de resistance at Florida to end the year, just at Gainesville is always a tricky match. That young Florida team will be a little bit older by the time that match rolls around. Still, Chris, you mentioned the non-conference schedule, maybe a bit on the lighter side. For what it's worth, I didn't mention the kickoff weekend. Notre Dame, Washington, your Liberty Flames coming to town. All due respect. Love you, Trevor. Um, I think Kentucky gets through the kickoff weekend and we'll see them at the national indoors. It's not a shock to me to see a lighter schedule, just given those are a lot of tough road matches in conference play. Yeah. And it's not, a. I mean, it's by no means a horrible, right? They scheduled Virginia. I mean, obviously these yeah, were it's still good. Exactly. These were home and home matches because they yeah. had them on the schedule last year. Right. But yeah, you still have Virginia. You still have Duke. You're gonna play, uh, you know, the 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 intrastate Louisville match, which is always great to see. Uh, nothing wrong there, uh, and then the Illinois match, a 
And yes, a couple with Dayton and Northern Kentucky, a couple matches to get some of your some of your newer kids in the lineup ready, not your all returning team type schedule, but it's not a bad schedule. And no, I and to your point, yes, they should roll through kickoff weekend. Look, obviously we know my uh, my affinity for for the for the flames, but I mean we're talking a we're talking a a, a Liberty team that's, you know, hoping to be a top 50 team and a Kentucky team that's hoping to be, you know, a top five slash national champion team. Uh, yeah. It's, you know, it's just, we're talking different things and, and a Washington team that lost a bunch of guys, Notre Dame. I, I actually expect Notre. I mean, I expect Notre Dame to win that match and play Kentucky uh, in the final, but not anything I'm overly worried about Kentucky losing Kentucky should without much issue at all, come through and make it to indoors and yeah, like you said, that SEC schedule, I mean, that that second to last weekend uh, with Georgia, Tennessee on the road, that's an absolutely brutal trip. I mean, that that's going to be sort of, we'll be getting through the season. They're probably going to be in the dogfight. Those are the three teams we called out for sure mm-hmm. to be at the top. Maybe you get some sleepers like a South Carolina. Who knows what Rodriguez? Well, can I just say the Tennessee Georgia weekend's the weekend of death. I would not wish at South Carolina at home on a Thursday at A and M as my first SEC weekend. That's their Thursday Saturday to start March. That's not easy either, Chris. For a young team, that at AM match, I am circling that one right now if I'm Cedric Kaufman and saying that is the danger zone. That's the one AM wins. Now, all of a sudden, that group with the 17 options they have for six singles starts to feel themselves a little bit, and Kentucky's knocked out of the SEC race right away. Yeah, that, that's it is brutal. And look, I've it, it's it's almost. Yeah, I don't follow it so deadly closely that I know what they do every year. But to me, it almost feels like a, a karma deal where <laughs> I've talked in the, I've talked in the past about how they've done like two years in a row. I think they sent Florida on a home match in Gainesville and a road match. You know, home match in Gainesville on Friday, road match at Kentucky Sunday. Just, I mean, brutal travel. It's it's you're playing home, and then you have to instantly jump on a plane and fly somewhere, and it's to Kentucky. Well, now they're doing the same exact thing to Kentucky. Guess what, guys? You get to play at home, and then you're jumping on a plane because you're sure as heck not driving to College Station. Uh, and so it's the same thing, uh, although they're Thursday Saturday matches. But yeah, it's you know you get one day, so they're going to play a Thursday match at 5 p.m. So they're not catching a flight Thursday night either. They're getting on a plane Friday, getting to College Station. Nobody goes and doesn't get a practice in the day before. So they're going to get as early a flight as they possibly can if they can't get some, you know, rich alum to lend them a private jet. Uh, And then they're going to be getting an early morning flight, get into College Station, try to get in an afternoon practice on, you know, dead legs and being on a plane all day and then turn around and, and play the next day. That's not an easy match. Yeah, it's two really tough weekends for this Kentucky team, certainly. And, you know, they're going to be fun ones. Hopefully we'll be on the call for here at Cracked Rackets. It's a fun schedule. And again, we're going to get to see them play Virginia's of the world. Honestly, I think that Duke match is going to be really fun as well. We'll see them pushed in conference play. That Illinois match, super exciting. 
I'm surprised we don't have Kentucky-Ohio State on the schedule. I feel like they've played that match a bunch of times, so surprised not to see it here. But look, as we wrap up this conversation about Kentucky, ultimately we have them at number eight. I mentioned it earlier. When they had Diallo, we had them at number two because you have Draxel, Diallo, Alafia. As good as Kentucky's top three was last year, top four even if you want to throw Lapidot and top five with uh, Mustrelli in the mix as well, they would have been a better version of that this season if you bring back Draxel, Diallo, Alafia, Body, Lapidot, five highly proven commodities in all of the positions they would have been playing. And then you just need one of the three freshmen or the three returners we alluded to to click and you feel really good if you're a Kentucky fan. Obviously, without Diallo, you know, a, a couple of things have to go a little bit. They have to click. Things have to go right for this Kentucky team. Dare I say they have to get a little bit luckier throughout the course of this season. That said, this team is at number eight. I talked about this yesterday with Jay, starting with our top eight on the women's side and Duke. Like, if Duke wins the national championship, I will not be shocked on the women's side. I would be surprised, but I wouldn't be shocked because I do think their roster is that good. Let me frame it like this about Kentucky. Are they in the inner conversation of the national championship for you, Chris? Are they a tier one team? Would you be sh- or would you be shocked if this team won the title in 2023? Well, I'm absolutely not going to be shocked, but I, but I will say that the you know the are they on that are they the tier one in the conversation right off the bat depends what I see out of the two freshmen I expect to be playing five and six for them. I have no doubts, no questions whatsoever about what we get from the top four guys. I think they're actually going to have one of the struggles for them in the past has been the doubles, right? I think they're actually going to, and and we didn't talk much about that. I think that's, you know, they were only, you know, 42 and 35 in doubles matches. Low uh, hanging fruit. Dual matches last year, right? Yeah. Hard to imagine that it gets any worse than that, especially when, you know, you've got some guys that, that can actually play some doubles here. So I think that actually gets better uh, with a deep, with a better, record in doubles and what I think should be, you know, if it turns out to be depth, you know, look, the, the, the sole hurting spot for that team last year was six. That was like you said, seven and 16 at number six. If these two freshmen can come in or if it's somebody that really, you know, if LeBlanc just boom, steps up and pops uh, uh, or Jonathan Sorbo does this, does it or JJ Mercer does it, whatever. If somebody steps up and they get a they get a five and six that that are very, very productive and it's not, you know, a 30 percent win record at six. No, I'm not going to be I'm not going to be shocked at all to to see them there. Yeah. I mean, look, this Kentucky team brings back a very strong uh, brings back a very talented roster. They have to prove themselves. They're going to have the opportunities to do that. You talk about that doubles thing. Here's the problem, Chris. Real scholars of college tennis have argued that it was all Pete Billingham and Matt Gordon was useless in that Coastal Carolina doubles team back in the day. And so hopefully Matt's calling Pete asking for advice. It's a big burden to place on Cedric. Um, no, obviously. I thought Cobalt did. I thought I thought Cobalt did all the doubles. Well, no, that's why they excised him from the staff. They were like, we can't have you here anymore. It didn't work. Uh, no, obviously Pete now an assistant coach, and we're very much looking forward to his successful college uh, college 
college coaching career off and running. And obviously, Matt, Cedric have earned the benefit of the doubt with the job they've done recruiting, developing over the course of the past few years. Yes, last year was the dramatic leap in results, but that Kentucky team was really fun back in 2021. And I know they lost to Arizona in the round of 32, but they were super fun throughout the course of the regular season. And again, Draxel is one of those foundational, generational program shifting types of guys and we've seen Kentucky make that sort of shift and get back to where they want to be throughout his run and you know maybe this is the final year of that run so certainly we are looking forward to it introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe more than just a tennis shoe it's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette it's designed to enhance speed and power on the court the multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at New Balance With that said, before we go, Chris, it's time for the predictions. Let's get to it. This Kentucky team, how do they do at the National Indoors? I mean, I think they're going to be, I'm I'm, I'm waffling between two and one and one and two uh, because, you know, Alafia should be fine indoors, obviously. Draxel's going to be uh, you know, okay. Not his best surface, obviously. Um, Josh body. Yeah. I I like that you're talking through it live. Yeah. I'm still going to, I'm still going to go two and one. I think they go two and one indoors quarterfinals or semis. Uh, I think it's a, I think it's a, I think it's a quarterfinal. I run. agree. That feels like a fair assessment. Where do they finish in the SEC? I think they're going to – I believe they will win one of the regular season or the conference tournament. Wow. You're our SEC expert, so folks, do not take those words lightly. I think they finish fourth or third in the SEC regular season. And then I think they remind everyone of who they are going into conference play by reaching the tournament finals. And I just think that road schedule is freaking brutal. And if there's an injury or maybe the freshmen go to Knoxville and it's like, wait, what is this? Or you're at Georgia and it's just a a blinking moment, even in College Station. It's a really tough schedule. That doesn't mean I don't believe in this team, by the way. I just think it's really hard to 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 play that it many is. road and matches that, in the yeah, SEC. That, like that, South Carolina, even at home to start, South Carolina's got veterans everywhere. Even if they don't have the top end guys, like you know, again, James Story versus one of the freshmen. Don't no, you have to take Story there? You're right. I mean, for them, for to think that if they're going to try to win the regular season, the that first weekend is a must two and zero weekend. Yeah. And that's not going to be easy, right? South Carolina is sort of our, you know, if we've got, if we've been talking about the top three of Kentucky, Georgia, Tennessee, in some order, the number four team is South Carolina. Uh, So to open with them and then go on the road to play A&M, I mean, they could come out of that 0-2 and and it would be a complete disaster Uh, because knowing you've got a weekend that's got at Georgia, at Tennessee later in the season, yeah, now you're going. Ooh, are we gonna are we gonna hold top three? Um, it it could be tough. So so yeah, that first weekend will be a big tell for them for sure. 
And then on the flip side, you're right, though. If they go 2-0, and now this team's confident. And now yeah. it's like now they could be undefeated going into that Tennessee-Georgia weekend in conference play. And now it's a brand new ball game. So yeah, I, they could I, be letting I, the other teams beat each other yeah. up until that point. It's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Fun team to watch. All right. Are they a top eight seed come the NCAA tournament? Yes. Do they reach quarterfinals, semifinals, finals, title? Give it to me, Chris. Your final prediction for Kentucky. Wow. It's so hard to say with two unknown freshmen that you're counting on. So there's no way you can really, I mean, sure, you could be bold and, and make some sort of gruskin pick of them <laughs> going back to the finals again. I'm, I'm not going to do that. I say, I'll say it's a quarterfinal run just because of the unknowns in these freshmen. And if it's not the freshman at five, six, then I don't like it beyond the quarterfinal anyway. Um, but I think it could be much, much better if they, you know, if they have the goods and, and they prove to be solid, solid five and six guys, I'm going to, I'll stick with, um, uh, the quarterfinal run at this point, just because some of the, the other top four teams are, are so talented that without a known commodity for me right now at five, six, I can't put them there. Fair enough. I'm going to go quarterfinals again. I think this group has been exceptional. Last year was a magical run. Quarterfinals is elite of the elite. You're at the final site. You're in the ball game. And we see you get to that final site, as Kentucky proved last year, anything can happen. But again, this is one of the last two years where the best in college tennis are just so deep, so experienced because of that extra COVID year. I like the experience of some of the teams higher in our preseason rankings just a little bit more. Still, quarterfinals, nothing to frown at. If you are a Kentucky fan, and it's going to be a fun 2023 season with the for the Wildcats. With that said, though, that's our look at number eight, Kentucky. Of course, Chris and I will be back Friday to break down our number seven team on the men's side. Jay and I back tomorrow to break down the number seven team on the women's side. A shout out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the fuck of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. Here's a fun plug for you, Chris Hallior a podcast you might actually like listening to. I finally got the chance to ask Petros about the UCLA quarterfinal match where he willed Melios Estafalu through the finish line to clinch that 4-3 match over Solokian. It's one of our it's one of the matches I will never forget, right? Because if you looked at Petro's face, it was like, hey, I'm going to beat you, Govinanda, in 46 minutes because I have to go cheer on my team. And it's actually more important for me to cheer them on than it is to beat you. So I'm going to beat you really fast so I can go do that. And I've just, I've never seen a smackdown like that. And it's why Petros was the guy he was. And so I bring that story up to Petros. And he tells me, shout out to Petros for giving me this detail. And I apologize because I'm about to drop a couple of F-bombs here back to back. He goes, yeah, it's funny you mentioned that, Alex, because – and he goes – he pauses. He goes, well, it's all these years later, so I don't mind saying it. He goes, so Tony comes up to me and he goes, hey, P, you have 55 winnets, minutes to win this match because I need you to go drag your boy Melios over the finish line because <laughs> it's going to come down to him. So, yeah, you're on the – he goes – he goes – in the middle of this, like the first set, he comes up to me, he goes, yeah, win fast. And I was like, I was just like, I knew it. I was like, if you were there, you could see it. That like the order was Petros, you're on the clock because we just need this point on the board. And then you got to go do what you do. 
And we got to talk about those things and just die. You know, again, Petros is – he's one of our guys, Chris, right? Like I could argue there's no pod today without him actually embracing our nonsense because it was like, look, if the best player in college tennis, Petros, is willing to do it, like who are you to say no to us? Yeah. Yeah, no, obviously, and we love Petros. So, yeah, I, I, I actually will – you know, that'll be like uh, what, pod number two that I listened to of <laughs> <laughs> it was actually a. I, it was the first time I was like, "Wow, we have been covering this game for a little bit because we got to see all of Petros's career. Like that was really for us. Eighteen, nineteen. He was the guy, um, the first guy. You know, we talk about the guy, and we'll do that during the regular season. Was Petros the first the guy we got to cover? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, the uh, first I mean, was, ro- oh, inaugural the guy winner, Petros Risokos. Does he put that on the resume? Fun yeah. facts. <laughs> I, the Great Shot podcast named me the first the guy award recipient. Yeah, I, he he probably was. It was yeah, he was he was phenomenal to watch. I mean, he was still you know in hindsight for me with Petros, it was you know my I remember going to indoors at Virginia, and you know wake gave you know my mississippi state bulldogs a pretty decent beat down <laughs> uh but it was petros versus nuno and petros is up like a set and five two and it was the first time that i actually i it was it was you know so it was a my first real experience watching like petros just really do his thing but then b Watching Nuno break, make it a match, wouldn't let Petros close him out. I got to see the first things of of the Nuno to come, uh, if you will. Uh, but yeah, that was that was some of my first experiences, really, really getting to watch watch Petros play. And yeah, he was it was phenomenal and always always fun, and he was always good to us. Well, I didn't put a timestamp on it, so you'll have to keep listening till you hear it. He raves about Nuno in the pod because I want. I asked him about his era and like, did you realize these guys were this good? Because you look at it now and like all of them. I I showed him the 2016 NCAA quarterfinals, which are like him, Torp, Vukic, Nuno, Nori, all these guys who are top 200 or better, right? And I'm like, did you sense that in the moment? And listeners, you should go listen to find out what he says because it very much is fascinating. And the best is like he's just willing to answer all these things now because yeah. he's our guy. And so it's a very good time. You'll all enjoy it. Again, we're rocking and rolling here to keep you occupied in the offseason at Cracked Rackets. This show, the mini break, the Cracked Interviews podcast, be sure to check them all out. With all of that said, for the fantastic Chris Hallioris, our super producer, Daniel Westhoff, and all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Chris, what do we tell our listeners? Hey. Great shot. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.